Hello and welcome to the Lightful Night podcast with me, Daniel, and you, Brother Thomas Therese, comma OP. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Lightful Night podcast. So we're continuing on from our reflections on Holy Week. So if you haven't uh, listened to our previous episode, it'd be really good to listen to as an introduction to what we're going to be talking about today. So because we've been talking about Holy Week from Palm Sunday up to Monday Thursday and talking about what Monday Thursday means so go and listen to go and listen to that one uh, so we left our last episode where Jesus and the disciples had departed from the upper room into the darkness just like Judas had entered into the darkness but he leaves the upper room into the darkness without the light <laughs> without the light without any light and without any song but Jesus and the disciples leave singing but also with the light of the world just to let you know when we get to what happens to jesus with his passion passion of course coming from the latin word meaning to suffer when we get to the uh, uh jesus's arrest and uh the torture of jesus and the his death just to let you know that i will be bringing in some of those archaeological facts uh about what would have happened to him what would have happened to his body um and that is fairly graphic uh it's not what happened to jesus is not a walk in the park right so it is going to be quite graphic so if you are of a sensitive disposition uh this might not be the podcast for you because it's uh, it's going to be quite graphic and it's going to be quite brutal so just to let you know from the beginning um i will be going into some of the medical medical issues surrounding the passion and crucifixion and some of the archaeological uh, evidence around the crucifixion uh, just to yeah bring home to you what really happened uh to this man and what's going on in the in this story it's it's a brutal it's a brutal reality of our of our faith and um really i i, I think it's really important to remember when you do hear these things that really it's to serve it serves to remind us the extent of God's love for us. Uh, it's there to bring home to us just how much God loves us, that he willed to do these things, that Jesus willed to die in this way for us, to mirror back to humanity how far they'd gone astray in their sinfulness and the sort of things that we will compromise on and see as acceptable when we're sort of encouraged by this mob. It's so that way we can see the blunt reality that we need a saviour. We need a saviour who's going to save us from our vices and also our bad, uh, our bad thoughts and actions and the things that we that we think are permissible. And he wills to do these things to save us, to strengthen us, to transform us and to transform the world and our society because he loves us. And he desires us to be united to him. So yes, it will be graphic, but all of these things are there to serve to remind us just how much God loves us. As it says in the Gospel of John, what greater love has a man than this than to lay down his life for his friends? Yeah, so Jesus and the disciples go out into the Garden of Gethsemane. And while they're there, Jesus has this very haunting question for them. Will you not watch with me? Will you not stay up with me as they quickly fall asleep? Simon Peter, are you sleeping? Oh, yeah, very, very striking questions for the apostles, but also for, for us. 
But there's a really lovely tradition in Rome, and I think it might be the same in Oxford, where after the Thursday Mass, when they depart from the church at the end, they, you have the Eucharist, literally the Eucharist, uh, communion is given out, is distributed, and then the priest takes Jesus, walks with Jesus to another altar, what's called an altar of repose, and it's adorned with flowers yeah. and leaves. Like it's set up like a garden, isn't it? You know, you have flowers, you have leaves, you have branches. Uh, you have candles everywhere and the idea is you watch and pray you watch and pray with the lord so you it's it's like you're going through those events again right so you're there at the last supper at mass on thursday where you share in the in the eucharist very often you'll have people from the congregation who are getting their feet washed the gospel will be giving a new commandment and things and then after mass is over immediately the lights start going out the priest with the servers carry the blessed sacrament to another altar which as you quite rightly say is adorned with flowers and branches and leaves and things and in in darkness with candlelight by candlelight we watch and pray with the lord and the tradition is that you know you try to stay at least for for an hour and things and the tradition was that you'd watch and pray perhaps till midnight because of course then people will people will leave the the watching and praying and uh, they leave the church just as the disciples fled from jesus and the church is stripped completely bare and this is again to to symbolize that moment when christ is arrested the disciples have fled uh, from jesus in the garden and the church looks desolate all the the linens are stripped away all of the furnishings the crucifixes everything are taken everything is taken away yeah so very stark appearance to the church so if you go to a church on good friday you'll you'll notice this or if you join a live stream on a good friday you you notice this that it's stripped bare so jesus is in the garden of gethsemane with his disciples and he's praying and they keep falling asleep but during this time then judas has gone off to betray Jesus to meet with those who are going to arrest Jesus and they come as a crowd together to arrest him before they come just before they come when Jesus is praying so Jesus is praying the disciples are falling asleep and things and um, we see a medical thing happen to Jesus particularly in the gospel of Luke so if you look at Luke chapter 22 verse 44 you'll see that Jesus sweats blood he suffers hematidrosis which is a medical condition causing a person to sweat blood. It's a very rare condition that's found with people who have extreme anxiety. Again, this is showing us that Jesus knows what is coming. He knows the brutal reality of what he's about to face. And some people will sort of point to some of the words that Jesus says, like, Father, if it be your will, take this cup from me, but let your will be done and not mine. And sort of say, oh, well, look, Jesus didn't really will his death. He didn't really want it. He wanted to escape from it. Oh, contraire as Bishop Robert Barrow might say, au contraire, look to the Gospel of John. And in the Gospel of John, you find Jesus saying, is the Son of Man not to drink the cup which the Father has given him? And he repeats this. He repeats this a few times where he says, am I not to do the will of the Father? Am I not to drink from this cup? Just a couple of things there for you. One is this medical condition, which leads some people to think that St. Luke writing the Gospel of Luke is, is a physician with this medical condition 
I'm sweating blood. Leonardo da Vinci actually sees this in, in a soldier before he's going off in the battle, this extreme anxiety which causes him to sweat blood. And it's because, again, Jesus knows what's happening. Jesus knows what's coming. But again, Father, your will be done. And also, you know, is the son of man not to drink of the chalice? He he wills this. And why? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And what greater love is a man than this than to lay down his life for his friends, accepting death, even death on a cross. When the crowds come, when Judas comes with the with the soldiers and the temple guards and things, Jesus says, you know, have you come looking for me with clubs and swords and things as though I'm I'm a brigand, as though I'm a robber? And he says, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, ego Amy. He says, I am or I am he. And they fall to the ground. Now, this, as we've said in a, in a previous podcast, did Jesus claim to be divine? You see this physical reaction of the created order that the people fall back because it's an invocation of the divine name. He's claiming for himself to not just be the one that they're looking for, but to be God. And this is why in the created order, they all fall back to the ground. So who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus means God saves. And he says, ego eimi, meaning I am he. But it's also what you find in the theophany of the burning bush or the revelation of God in the burning bush in Exodus. I am that I am. It's an invocation of the presence of God, the divine name. They fall back. And then he says again, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I am he. And they go to take him away. Peter, of course, who has a sword, strikes out at Malchus, the servant of the, the servant, I think it's the servant of the high priest, isn't it? And he strikes out at him and Jesus says, sheathe your sword. He who lives by the sword will die by the sword. Very dramatic things. And at this, people flee. And in Mark's gospel, it says that there was a man who ran away naked. A funny sort of uh, odd, odd bit of the Bible that lots of people make all sorts of different things about. But the disciples scatter the shepherd is struck and the flock scatters. And then Jesus is taken by the guards to Annas, who is the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest in that year. You've got something interesting, actually, about, about Annas, don't you? Yeah, I was reading somewhere that he held so much power, Annas, uh, not Annas, <laughs> not Ananias. Ananias is a different person. Um, Annas, he Annas, held me. so much power as a person that many of his sons were high priests so you were high priest for just a year but many of his sons I think five in total were high priests and now also his son-in-law mm. Caiaphas is a is a high priest which shows why Jesus is brought before Annas before mm. he is taken later to the patriarch the puppeteer yeah but doesn't show how power gets in can get into the wrong hands and be used for its own mm. own good really not for for god but mm. for own its own good and its own gain mm. so after jesus has been brought to annas and caiaphas uh, he's condemned and he's mistreated by the sanhedrin throughout the night uh, and i think this actually shows why the we take these events to be one long event it's not just three separate days but jesus stays up through the night he's imprisoned and i remember you telling me about the prison that he was likely put in yeah at caiaphas's palace archaeologists found prisons underneath and basically i mean now you can walk down into the i mean it was such an extraordinary experience walking down those stairs and being perhaps in the cell where christ would have been kept 
as they're waiting for him to be taken to Pilate and after he's condemned and things. Let's not forget, you're quite right, Dan, like he would have been, by this stage, he would have been sleep deprived. He would be tired. So in the, in this uh, this cell, he would have been lowered through a hole in the roof. It was the only way in and the only way out. You'd have been lowered through a hole in the roof and you'd have just been hanging there. You'd have been hanging there until they, they pull you out. And it reminds me of the Psalms, you know, those Friday Psalms we pray. Friend and neighbour you have taken away from me. My one companion is darkness. And I tell you what, when we were down there, when we were down there in the middle of the day, it was dark. And the only light that was coming in was through that tiny little hole. And at late at night, when Jesus would have been there in the very early hours of the morning, sleep deprived and everything, hanging there. By this stage, of course, remember, let's remember, he'd been spat at, he'd been hit. And Jesus says, you know, why do you strike me? Is there something untrue in what I've said? Why? Because at his trial, they bring people to testify against him. They bring people to bear false witness against him because, of course, he is who he claims to be. And they say, you know, are you the son of the blessed one? Are you the son of the most high? And Jesus says, yes, and you will see the son of man come again in glory. And the, the high priest tears his garments, and uh, which is a sign of great grief and great anger. He tears his garments and he says, what need of witnesses have we? What further need of witnesses have we? You've heard it from his mouth. Give me your verdict. And he is condemned. At that same time, Peter is denying Jesus outside three times as Christ says that he would and the cock crows. Peter realises what's happened and he's filled with shame and he flees from the courtyard because people say, aren't you one of another one of his disciples? You know, yeah, I recognise your accent. You sound just like him. You must be one of his disciples. And he flees away from Jesus, having promised to die for him, having promised to be with him. He flees from the courtyard and runs away in shame by the fact that he denied he denied his Lord and his friend. The difference, of course, between Peter and, and uh, Judas is Peter doesn't despair and he comes back and he seeks the Lord's forgiveness. It, it is quite stark when you when you go to the Holy Land, you can go to, to the excavations of Caiaphas's palace and you can go to that place where um, where the, those dungeons are. And it's literally it's a hole in the in the in the roof that he would have been lowered down and he would have been hanging there already exhausted, tired. Uh, mistreated, abused, beaten, spat at, awful. The guide who we had actually there said that he also thought that Jesus would have been scourged already by this stage in this in this process. And then you have the sort of the formal condemnation of Jesus. Judas goes back to the high priest and he's been given 30 pieces of silver and he gives, he tries to give the money back. And the, the priests say, we don't want this money. This is blood money. We don't want this money. We can't accept it. Ritually, we can't accept this money. And Judas, being filled with shame and despair for what he's done, flees out of the city and he commits suicide outside the city walls. And still to this day, the place is called the Field of Blood. I remember when we were going through on the coach, I remember the guide saying, this is the field where Judas committed suicide. So the Jewish Sanhedrin have condemned Jesus to death, but because they do not have power to put him to death, they can't. So they have to come up with a way of making him appear before Pilate because Pilate, being the, the head or the governor of the province, has the power to put people to death, but the Sanhedrin don't have the power. But because Pilate would not be concerned about this matter of faith, this matter of uh, debate over whether Jesus 
is who he says he is, uh, they have to, the Sanhedrin have to come up with another claim against him. And that claim is that uh, Jesus is a, a whipper up of, of the crowd, that there's going to be trouble. He's an agitator. An agitator yeah. So they come before Pilate and Jesus appears before Pilate and he questions him. Pilate questions Jesus and so Pilate finds no reason to condemn him and he suggests that the Jewish leaders deal with Jesus according to their own law but under Roman law the Jewish people could not execute Jesus so they appealed to Pilate to issue the order to kill him and Pilate then appeals to King Herod you know and King Herod's been trying for ages to get to see Jesus and then finally he gets to see uh, Jesus and he doesn't find him interesting at all. He gives no he, he gives no real interest in answer or insight to King Herod. But I think isn't that amazing that he doesn't respond to the powers that be? These people who have wrestled power for themselves. Yeah. One of the things that I find quite interesting about Herod is that in scripture it doesn't tell us what Herod said. All it says is that he insulted him, he mocked him, and Jesus gave no answer before him. He was he was silent before him, just as he had just been silent before Pilate. He doesn't say anything to him, and it's not recorded what Herod said. Herod just sends him back. It does say that Herod questioned Jesus, but we don't know what Herod's questions are. It doesn't say. That again implies that this was done behind closed doors and, you know, the, the people, the, the gospel writers and things who were party to some of the other events uh, in this narrative and in Jesus' life didn't see this. So they know he was questioned, they know he was insulted, but they don't know the questions that Herod asked. And isn't that proof of the real historicity of these accounts? It's like the, mm. the gospel writers are not trying to claim a conversation which happened. Yeah. They're not trying to say what happened behind those closed doors because they, they just do not know. It's part of a cumulative, a cumulative case for the historical reliability of the gospels. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So Jesus goes back to Pilate and Pilate declares jesus to be innocent and he washes his his hands to show that he wants nothing to do with this mm. but the crowd are enraged they're being ripped up crucify him and in order to prevent a riot well in order to protect himself as well not to side he doesn't side with truth and with innocence he sides on the other side uh, he agrees to execute jesus and sentences him to crucifixion but the crowd are shouting to crucify jesus that with you saying about a uh, truth there you, you reminded me you know of course now jesus does speak to pilate in, in one of the gospel accounts you know he says you know do you not know i have power to release you and things and uh, why aren't you talking to me and jesus says you would not have power had it not been given to you from above and he says things like well do you do you not think that my my father would have not sent legions of angels to come and uh, to protect me uh, and all the rest of it. You would not have power over me had it not been given to you from above. And Pilate says, oh, so you are a king then. And Jesus says, well, it's you who say it. Uh, he, there's a, then a question of truth. And Pilate says, truth, what is that? What is truth? How often do we hear that as, <laughs> as Christians? He sounds like a philosopher. Yeah, truth. Huh, what is that? But of course, in John's gospel, of course, we've already been told Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. And this, one of my friends, Jonathan, pointed out to me that um, it points to Psalm 50, where it, you have somebody who's innocent, who, who's being judged. 
And in at the beginning of Psalm 50, it says, Our God comes and will not be silent. A fire, a fire devours before him, and around him a tempest rages. He summons the heavens above and the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me this consecrated people who made my covenant with me by sacrifice. He's talking about Israel here. He's talking about Israel. And Christ, of course, will judge. But later, towards the end of the psalm, we find... You hate my instruction and cast my words behind you. When you see a thief, you join with him. You throw in your lot with adulterers. You use your mouth for evil and harness your tongue to deceit. You sit and testify against your brother and slander your own mother's son. When you did these things and I kept silent, you thought I was exactly like you. But now I arraign you and I set my accusations before you. Then this moment of silence of Christ, he is judging. He is judging them. But what is his throne of judgment? Where is his seat of judgment? Of course, the pavement is called the seat of, uh, the seat of judgment in the, in the scriptures. Where is Christ's throne? Where is Christ's seat of judgment? The cross. On the cross, he judges justly and mercifully with his people. And at the end of the psalm, it says, consider this, you who forget God, or I will tear you to pieces with no one to rescue you. Those who sacrifice Eucharistic offerings to me, thank offerings, honor me and to the blameless I will show salvation. So this is a, again it's a psalm about vindication, it's a psalm where we see these themes of silence and you know when I was silent you thought I was just like you but actually the psalm is also about how this innocent man sits in judgment on the people who think that they're judging him. So this psalm is very much connected to this moment of the passion and it also reminds me of uh, on the crucifixion when Jesus uh, says, you know, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me from the Psalms? People think, oh, look, you know, this means that Christ was abandoned by the Father. Absolutely not. He's referencing not only the opening lines, the whole Psalm. And what's that Psalm about? It's about an innocent man who's been wrongfully convicted. And at the end of the Psalm, it says that he will be vindicated by God, just as Christ is vindicated when he's risen on the on the on the third day so this again is about an innocent man being wrongfully condemned being wrongfully judged because of course why is he being judged because he claimed to be god it's for blasphemy but of course christ is who he said he is so it's not blasphemy yeah just on the point of that psalm it also shows who the other people are in that psalm as well if you have an opportunity to to read that psalm that starts my god my god why have you forsaken me you start to see that the other people are playing their part in that psalm and of course the people would know that psalm so well and they would know that what he is referencing the whole psalm not just those opening words they would recognize it like we would recognize a popular song nowadays okay so jesus was convicted proclaiming himself to be the king of the jews and before his execution on the cross he's flogged which would be the normal practice intended to weaken the victim in order that they they would die quicker on the cross and then he's he's led uh, away uh, to be crucified and he carries the cross on the way to the place of golgotha where he's to be crucified and then jesus is on the cross then for six hours in total yeah, just just to go back to what we were saying earlier about the scourging at the pillar, the whips that were used for scourging, just to give you, so this is where I'm going to come at you with the archaeological, brutal sort of graphic detail of uh, what would have happened to him, right? So if you're of a sensitive disposition, luck away now, but if you if you can bear with it, do, because it, hopefully it will show you the reality of God's God's love for you. 
So the scourging of the pillar, the pillar would have contained a hole containing salt, which could be thrown onto the wounds, you know, rubbing salt in the wounds, that sort of thing. And there are various, there are various reasons, not purely to do with pain, why salt would have been thrown on the, thrown on the wounds and things. The whips that were used for scourging would have had embedded hooks of metal, bone and stone that were designed to tear into the flesh, ripping it, tearing it from the body down to and through the muscle. Some people, when they were scourged, died just from the shock, from the shock alone of being scourged. And of course, if, if we take some of the prophecies of scripture, we would say that Christ would have been scourged many, 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 many times. So those whips with the hooked metal, the bone, the stone, they're designed to tear into the flesh and rip it, rip the flesh from the bones, rip the muscle off this human being. And the shock would have been so great going through all of those nerve endings, ripping uh, around around the body and every sort of breeze that would have that would have come. You know, when you get sometimes like a paper cut and things and you get a little bit of loose skin and you just catch that loose skin and it really goes through you and sends goes through your nervous system. Imagine all of those wounds from the flagellation, from the scourging at the pillar, all of those wounds, all those little bits of flesh that would have been hanging off him like ribbons, catching the breeze uh, that, that would have just sent shockwaves through his nervous system. Dressing him then in robes and removing the robes again or tearing the robes from him again would reopen those wounds from the scourging if they start to coagulate and they aggravate the nerves in the back. So they put this robe on him, and then later when he gets to the site of the crucifixion, they tear the robes from him, they tear his, his garments from him when he's about to be crucified, that, that one seamless garment that his mother would have made for him. They tear that from him, they tear it from his flesh, or they say they don't actually tear the garments because they, they cast lots for the garment, but they take it from him that would have reopened those wounds again, again, aggravating the nerves in his back. And just to let you know, like a typical cross would have weighed, used in a crucifixion, would have weighed between 75 and 100 pounds. So this would have been doing real physical damage to his body. Not only that, of course, people who are crucified are crucified naked to add to the humiliation. And the nails which would have been, which would have pierced through Jesus's wrists are typically between nine or, or seven inches long, seven to nine inches long. And they would have gone through the median nerve. So they would have put these nine inch nails, seven to nine inch nails through the wrist of Jesus, which would have severed uh, the median nerve or would have caught, been catching the median nerve. And medical experts liken this pain to being struck by lightning and feeling a severe burning pain. That's what it's like having these nine inch nails. So just I just find this so crazy. He was scourged at the pillar, tearing the flesh from his bones carrying a cross in that heat, which was 75 to 100 pounds. Again, taking the taking the garment off him, reopening those wounds. He'd been spat at, he'd been hit with a, with a reed. And you know when you hear that sound that goes through the air? That's again, breaking that sound barrier. And then they crucify him with seven to nine inch nails going through the median nerve, which medical experts liken to being struck by lightning and giving you a severe burning pain. The knees would have been flexed at about 45 degrees and the feet were flexed and bent downwards. An additional 45 degrees, the feet were sort of bent down until they were parallel with the vertical pole. Then the iron nail, which is about 79 inches long, was driven through the feet, 
between the second and third metatarsal bones. And in this position, the nail would sever the, the what's called the dorsal uh, pedal artery of the foot. But the resultant bleeding would not be enough to cause death. But the victim is now in an impossible position to maintain because of the degrees of the feet and the angles of everything that he's, and again, he's stuck to these things. He's in an, an impossible position to maintain. Just to breathe, Jesus would have to push down on his feet to inflate his chest. But this causes excruciating pain on his feet, leading him to collapse down, which then brings the full weight back onto his thighs and his wrists, further aggravating the median nerve and the nerves down the back, which, of course, his wounds are still all open. And those wounds in the back are being rubbed against the wood of the cross. So he's getting no comfort from, from anywhere. His back is being aggravated by the wood of the cross. His median nerve is being stimulated constantly by having to, to, from pushing himself up to gasp for breath and then collapsing under the pain, which then hits that median nerve again. And this goes on for hours. And by this stage, remember, he's deprived of sleep. He's deprived of food and possibly water during this whole experience. So he's possibly uh, hungry, tired, thirsty. He has nothing he has no comfort. He's naked and he's there in front of people to gawp at. And his mother, he's seeing his mother's agony as well. His mother seeing her son abused, tortured to death. I, I mean, the, the, the pain. And then he can say, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And then he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Remarkable. Absolutely remarkable. What's his cause of death, ultimately, apart from being tortured to death? Asphyxiation. Fluid fills the lungs. Asphyxiation. Before this, of course, Jesus gives his beloved disciple to his mother and he says, woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. He gives the church, symbolized in, in, in that action by the beloved disciple, to his mother. And it says, from that moment, the beloved disciple made a place for her in his home. So I'd say to you listeners, if you, if you want to be a good and faithful disciple of Jesus Christ, make a place for Mary in your home and in your prayer lives, and you'll become better disciples. She has been entrusted to you as your mother, and she intercedes with you to her son. I, I just, I find that whole thing remarkable. And if you go to Isaiah, uh, if you want to, if you want to see something from the Old Testament where this is prophesied, go to Isaiah 53, 5 to 11. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before the shearers is dumb, so he opens not his mouth. He was taken out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people, and he was stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He put him to grief. When you shall make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his descendants. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul, and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. And in the Psalms, 
We read in Psalm 22, For dogs have encompassed me, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed on me. They're mocking him as he's dying. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can number all my bones. They look and stare upon me. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. Even my close friend whom I trusted, he who shared my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. All of this stuff, uh, it, I just find it absolutely remarkable. Yeah, you know that that's that um, psalm that you're quoting from there is Psalm 22, which begins with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So we have here, obviously, gruesome events of Jesus's death. And you can commemorate Good Friday, what happens on Good Friday, with the Stations of the Cross. There are a devotion that you can walk through during Lent, and most especially on Good Friday. So you can mark Good Friday with that particular devotion. So then Jesus dies on the cross and a lance is put into his side to make sure that he is dead. Uh, he's then taken down from the cross and, and laid in a tomb. And that's where we're going to leave this episode now. We're going to finish there with Jesus buried in the tomb. And then we're going to return for what happens next in our next episode. Because Jesus doesn't remain in the tomb.